0: Welcome aboard. We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime. Ready when you are, CB. Action. Welcome to Monorail Radio, episode number 95. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And we are so excited to be joined by a very special guest tonight. This is somebody that means an awful lot to Jackie and I. I actually met him. I met him a few years ago. It was at my first Run Disney event when we ran the half of a half um, for Wine and Dine uh, Half Marathon back in 2015. He's a member of the WDW Radio running team. And you guys have probably noticed him on social media, definitely on Instagram for his very unique, always creative and always festive running outfits. Luke Lawson joining Monorail Radio tonight. Luke, we are so happy to finally have you on.
1: Well, Sean, Jackie, you have no idea how excited I am to be here. I believe, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but I may have been one of the first people to ever hear an episode of Monorio Radio. Is that correct?
0: You were the first. Oh, look at so that. So, there, yes, so honored and first. privileged. So here's there's a little backstory here. So,
2: we, You also forgot Lover of Nutter Butters in his intro. How He dare is a lover you? of
0: Nutter Butters. Um, I have Absolutely. fed him Nutter Butters at races before. Absolutely.
1: <laughs> my, some of my favorites.
0: So... When we came up with the concept for Monorail Radio, we had recorded the Little Mermaid episode a couple of days before we released it to the general public, and we wanted to just make sure that, like, we struck all the right chords. So the first person that we sent a copy of the show to to get their review was Luke Lawson and luke was very very supportive of us our friend christina k who's been on with us before she was supportive of it and we were like well if we have luke and we have christina we're we're in we're good to go but
2: luke could have shut us down
0: listeners yeah so you you, have
2: him to thank you have him to thank for for 95 episodes
1: i'm very glad that i did not shut you down and that we are 95 episodes in um congratulations 100 is coming soon Uh, You well-deserved all of the the successes. Very, very excited to be here tonight.
0: Thank you, my friend. Thank you. So I have to tell the story of how Luke and I met, and and I'm sure Luke will jump in on this too. So I have not been shy on this show about my love of many things, up to and including the New York Islanders, who 30 years later are still the team of the future. But I was wearing, and, and I've been upfront about this, when I do my any event. Now, I always have my WDW radio team, running shirt when I run any sort of race whether it's with the team uh, you know on Disney property or not so I have my royal blue running team shirt I have blue orange and white shorts I have white uh, socks and I have blue shoes with uh, orange laces and I always wear my Islanders hat so I
2: I will vouch for this Sean is blue and orange when he runs
0: I am blue and orange we are part of the blue and orange army 329 so I am all about that life. So I've never run a race with the team before. This is back in 2015, as I mentioned earlier, the half of the half that got cut down because of a horrible storm. And I'm in my blue and orange. And I meet Frank Hart, who's a St. Louis Blues fan. So I'm talking to Frank about hockey. And then here comes somebody who's, I'm not going to say cosplay because it wasn't quite cosplay But it's not a full outfit, but he's dressed as Donald Duck. So here comes this person dressed as Donald Duck. And he looks at me and he says, what did he say to me?
1: I said, Islanders, team of the future, I'd say.
0: And from that (laughs) moment on, I said, he's seen heavyweights. We're on the same team. This guy's dressed as Donald Duck. He's going to be a friend for life.
1: So to be honest, Sean, you were the very first person I ever talked to on the running team. So uh, that was my very first race as well as a member of the WDW radio running team. Uh, that was the first thing I ever said to anybody. And you looked straight at me and you went heavyweights. And I was like, we're best friends for life.
0: <laughs> and that's amazing because this is the first time I've heard that that was the first words ever spoken to anybody on the running team. Well, it there's was.
2: another first two, apparently. And I got to say, listeners, you've all been sleeping on this. Luke has apparently come up with the first monoreal radio drinking game. Sean and I have no idea what this is. We just know that there's a drinking game, and we are so excited to find out what the rules are.
1: So when Sean and Jackie asked me to come on, we knew that it was going to be a summer special, right? We're talking about summer movies. Um, this entire time, I thought, what better way to ingratiate myself to your audience than to come up with a way to stay hydrated throughout the summer, right? So this is a drinking game. Uh, whatever beverage of choice, water, whatever it is. Or um, not. So uh, if you... If you <laughs> I mean, or not. I,
0: ice is water. It's just cold.
2: Yeah, it's just floating in my tequila. It's very true. So here here are
1: the rules of the drinking game. There are several things that if said or mentioned, you take a drink. Okay, ready? Um, I've got some for Sean, some for Jackie, and some for both. Which one do you want?
2: <laughs> I have to imagine... <laughs> And if it's not in there, I don't know if I'm going to play. I have to imagine there's a drink every time Sean compares a movie to either Batman or Ghostbusters.
0: Ding and ding. Yes. Yes. All right. So let's start with me. And I, I would assume because I have things that I say quite often, something to the effect of I just have to say. Which is kind of redundant when I've noticed that about myself. I I just have to say well of course you of course you do. You have a podcast. It's it's audible. You're going to hear it. Okay, I I need to hear what my portion of this drinking game is.
1: So I did not have just have to say, but actually that's a pretty good one if we think about it. Um so I have Sean mentioning a controversy about a film. Ooh. This happens. Not too often, but when it does, it's a doozy. So this should be like, uh, you know, a pretty nice drink. Um, stay very hydrated on that one. Yep. That's um, a really Sean, good
2: point because you do. You always find that tidbit before I do.
1: Yeah. Pretty good.
2: Yeah, that's I, great. I, we're in. That's yeah, we're great. In. I think it's
1: pretty good. I think it's pretty good. Um, Sean, also, uh, anytime you say all intents and purposes,
0: that's <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's one of mine.
1: Uh, and then that's that's all that I have
2: for
0: just Sean. Oh ready okay. Jackie? Well, wait a minute now. You you're falling off your chair no, right now. You only had like three for me. Bring it. Okay, Jackie. Uh, you have two movies
1: as well. Can you name them?
2: Grease. Grease Every is time one I say hey yes. Grease, yeah. Um, and then
1: the second one was a was a toss up, but I, I think I'm gonna go with the one that uh, that I have written down.
2: Every time I compare a movie...
0: You bring up Frozen and Pete's Dragging quite a bit.
1: Frozen is it. Good word.
2: It's
1: like you guys know each other fairly well. (laughs) Uh, And then, Jackie, your your sort of phrase thing that you bring up is that uh, you mentioned that you've worked in film and TV. This is true. Yep, I like that one. Um, And then the last four are all that you both do that I just absolutely love. One is... When you say that you say wax poetic, you're gonna wax. I, I, we just wax poetic about that. I love that. <laughs> Every time you do that, I'm like, yes, okay, wax poetic. Great phrase. That is a popular uh,
2: Sean phrase. It is.
1: You make a Parks reference, but more specifically, you mention MGM.
2: Yes, yep. absolutely. We just I love got our shirts one. actually that say "It will always be MGM to me," and it's got the the Earful Tower, the Earful Tower on it.
1: Absolutely love that. Taylor made from uh, on Radio. One person who you mentioned more, I think that... Well, okay, two people who you mention a lot. One, I think, more than the other is Tim Burton. Anytime Burton is brought up.
0: Yeah, um, usually never positive. You know, he doesn't yeah. have a style, Luke. I don't know if you've heard that. <laughs> no, no, no.
1: That, that swirly thing and the trees, not at all. Uh, but then <laughs> I think my favorite one, because it always hits home for me um, and for you guys as well, is when you mention Walt. And that's either your dog
0: or the man. Okay, I'm good with that. So these are the... Drinking games for basically any episode. For all intents and purposes, any episode of Monorail Radio, <laughs> go take your first one. All right. Now this is awesome. I am so glad that you brought that up. I'm so glad that we have this. I'm just, uh, that's it. I'm just saying I'm so glad. This is going to be awesome. So you guys, moving forward now, you have 94 previous episodes <laughs> that you can go back and play this with. And I know I cannot be your sponsor. So, Heavyweights, the movie starts when Jerry Garner, an overweight youth, gets the surprise of his life when his parents send him to a weight loss camp for the summer. Camp is called Camp Hope. Jerry meets Roy on his flight to the camp and tells him, and and this is Roy, tells him that camp is great because no one makes fun of you. You know, you all look exactly the same and you all sort of have the same struggles. Upon landing, he meets Pat, one of his counselors, who promises him the best summer of his life. He also meets another counselor, Tim, and Nurse Julie, as well as fellow campers, Josh, Philip, Nicholas, an assortment of others as well, who show him where they hide all of their smuggled junk food in the chipmunk bunk. After a fun first day, the campers are shocked to learn that the beloved owners of Camp Hope, the Bushkins, have sold the camp to fitness guru uh, guru, Tony Perkis, who plans to use the campers as subjects of a new infomercial and a new videotape that he wishes to sell at the end of the summer. The next day, Tony begins the insane weight loss regiment in the hopes that the boys will eventually defeat Camp MVP at the Apache Relay as well as be great subjects for his weight loss video, but not before Camp MVP shows up and dismantles Camp Hope in a softball game. That night, Tony finds the junk food stash and confiscates it. He also makes Josh disappear after Josh makes a fool of Tony in front of the other campers. Jerry writes a letter to his grandmother to tell her of the insane conditions of the camp and that the blob, which was this big, um, I don't want to call it a water toy, but it's like a water, not a catapult, but, but... I mean, it's It's like a big airbag. Yeah, an airbag. A kid would sit on one side, somebody else would jump on the other, and it would launch them 15 feet in the air into the water. That's destroyed. The go-karts are taken away. And basically, nobody will listen to his complaints. Even his father, who he calls and his father says, I didn't spend money to send you to go-kart camp. He also tells her that Tony has arranged a dance with the girls' camp over near Camp Hope to basically humiliate the boys into losing weight. At the dance, Tim, Julie, and Pat dance in order to get everyone involved, which works, that is, until Tony unexpectedly ends the dance when he sees that everybody is actually having fun. That night, Josh returns after his parents threaten to sue Tony Perkis for sending him home without a refund. Upon learning that Tony has confiscated all of the junk food the boys sneak into his cabin and find that Tony has also kept all of the letters that the boys tried to send home they also learn that junk food is being smuggled into the camp in exchange for money and they take advantage of the opportunity to break Tony's insane diet at their next weigh in Tony sees that the boys have gained weight and decides to punish them by putting them through a 20 mile hike on the hike the boys trap Tony in a ditch and eventually lock him in a cell They tear down all of Tony's signs and decide to finish the summer on their own terms and start by ordering tons of junk food and having a bonfire. The next day, Pat discovers them and tells the boys that they need to practice self-control, and everybody agrees to this. So they start to lose weight in a healthy way, you know, really at their own pace. At Parents Weekend, the campers expose Tony for what really happened at Camp Hope all summer. Tony, meanwhile, breaks out of his cell, only to be punched by Jerry's father and eventually pulled out of the camp by his own father, who really, not only did he donate all of the lighting fixtures for the camp, but he's, I mean, he's basically... He's basically Tony's meal ticket. He's the means of giving him all the funding to do all of these projects that he's working on. The kids say that they want to stay at Camp Hope, so Tony's father, Tony Sr., puts Pat in charge of the camp, which is returned to its glorious state. At the Apache Relay, Jerry clinches a victory for Camp Hope after winning the Grand Prix, and he then thanks Pat for the best damn summer of his life and that in short is the plot for 1995's heavyweights. So this movie is very very unique. I will rem- I-, I remember going as a kid, going to see this in the movies with my brother and my parents and we walked out saying that movie was funny and my mom said yeah, but it didn't feel like a Disney movie.
2: What's also surprising to me is that it doesn't feel like an Apatow movie or a Ben Stiller movie, right? Like, when you think that particular brand of comedy for either of them, really, like Apatow, you're thinking Knocked Up, you're thinking Trainwreck and things like that, and Ben Stiller, I mean, maybe it's a little bit different for me because I didn't grow up on this one the way you two did. I had seen it maybe once before we watched it for the show. I'm thinking Zoolander for Ben Stiller, obviously. But this feels more like a meet the parents for him like he's not as eccentric in this one
1: see i would i would i would agree with that except for dodgeball and white good this is white goodman right this is the impetus of that character for ben stiller um and kind of like you sean i so i saw this movie in the theaters 1995 i'm nine years old um i grew up on salute your shorts
0: And, uh,
1: you know, loving Camp Nowhere and in a few years, Wet Hot American Summer and uh, Bug Juice, right? And so this movie was the reason why I wanted to go to a summer camp, which I went to that summer when I was nine years old and have been going to the exact same summer camp for 25 years. So this movie holds a huge special place in my heart, not only for that, but also because it, it, it showed me that, like, I love those movies where kids can get together and do something awesome. Not so great that they took over the camp. However, at the end of the day, you know, they they win the Apache Relay and they make everybody feel good.
0: Yeah, I think this movie is so unique. I mean, here's the thing. Without spoiling too much of my review... I do think that certain elements of this movie are a product of their time. You know, are product are they're a product of the mid '90s. A lot of this movie reminds me of a film that we have also reviewed, which was Blank Check, which came out a year before this movie did, and it's very, it's so unique because it is Judd Ap- uh, Judd Apatow. But you're right, it's not. You know what it is, Judd Apatow. I think is. I think he is the pedestal for modern comedy um, we all have to start somewhere and this is where he got his start so there there's certain language of the film I'm not gonna say the language is harsh but I there's certainly bad language there's not and I won't repeat it on the show not because it's over the top but you know in the essence of being a family family Show There are some things that I remember hearing as a kid when I was nine years old, just like Luke, and my parents were like, ooh, an 11-year-old said that in a Disney movie? It makes sense now, 25 years later, knowing it's Judd Apatow, but you can see where his brand of humor is in this movie, but you can also see where this kind of became a springboard For everything he's done since then.
2: I want to circle back to something that Luke said. Because if it feels like anything, you're right. Some of the language and some of the themes don't feel like Disney. But to me, I think the natural comparison as far as a Disney film goes is probably Mighty Ducks. And that is largely in part due to the cast. But to me, as far as the feel salute your shorts is spot on this feels more like it could have been a Nickelodeon film because that was their whole thing was kid power and you kind of got that from movies like Harriet the Spy that were all Nickelodeon productions and I feel like this is more in that vein than really anything Disney's ever done other than blank check right
0: and and I I've even said to you when we went back and watched it this week the scene you know I talked about the uh, the plot just a moment ago. The scene where they're getting the junk food snuck into the camp, I constantly confuse this with that episode of Salute Your Shorts where Mm -hmm. Donkey Lips and Budnick go and get the burgers from the burger shack.
2: The weigh-ins, too. Yes. That was a big thing because I think it was Donkey Lips and Sponge that were trying out for the wrestling team and one had to lose and one had to gain.
1: Yeah, we just now need a part of this where they're locked in the nurse's room and they have to do a puzzle and they're trying to get the ice cream out. That's
2: right, the ice cream.
1: That's my favorite episode. But yes, it's very, very similar to your Shorts. As
2: long as Zeke the Plumber is not in it, I'm good.
0: The first season of Salute Your Shorts was great. The second season, eh, it was okay. But the first, Do you know that that show only aired for two seasons? That's the wild thing about Salute Your Shorts. Like, you feel like it went on forever. Now we've really gone off the rails. But you feel like it went on for years it and years. Was it was
2: on all the time. I think that's what it was. Because all the time. It
0: was constantly on, but only two seasons. That's all it was.
2: You also
1: have like Hey Dude, which was right before that, and I feel like yep. that feels like the same show. And then Pete and Pete, which also was around then, and that kind of also feels like the same show. So, uh, are you afraid of the dark as well? So it's it's all kind of in the same vein. And the and
0: tie-in with with uh, um, Hey Dude is Christine Taylor, who later went on to marry Ben Stiller.
2: Right, and Keenan came from Nickelodeon too. Well, he, well no, all he that. did he did this first. Mighty Ducks Two was his first film then this, then D3, and then he got into Nickelodeon. But I think some of these shows felt like they were on so much longer because they're all kids, and they went through major growth spurts. There's nothing you could do about it.
0: Yeah, that that's very true as well. But circling back around here to heavyweights, immediately out of the gate, I remember being a kid, and of course you see the kid in the Islander shirt, so... You know, it, it felt like it was something that was familiar to, to me because it was home. It was something, it was a shirt. That I owned that Islander shirt. Um, But I also, I loved the 90s soundtrack that you get as soon as the movie opens. Yes. You know, I'm a big fan of that 90s alt rock. So I loved it when I was growing up and I still love it now. So for all of those purposes, like, I'll put this movie on and i still watch it a couple of times a year more specifically towards the beginning of the summer i can't help but just grin like a fool when i when the movie starts because it reminds me of being 9 years old myself
2: that that song that plays in the beginning i feel like you'd hear that in american pie or something so it's a little jarring and the islander shirt was completely jarring for me because again i didn't grow up on this i saw it later in life i was already an islander fan which didn't happen really until I met you. So when I saw the Islanders in a movie, I was like, what is happening right now? And by yeah, the way, I- 25 years later, they are not the team of the future. I will attest to that. We don't even have a home right now. We don't have a venue. Add that nothing. to the list of 2020. We're homeless. The,
1: so, so the thing that's very surprising, the soundtrack is, is, fantastic. Starting off with closer to free is a great way to start. Um, the thing that surprised me, you, you mentioned that the Islanders, there's a lot of, uh, Pro sports teams merchandise in this, so a lot of like NFL jerseys, which I found really interesting at the time, and they're all from all over, right? So you had you had Falcons, you had Dolphins, you had Panthers, uh, just very that was very interesting to me. I don't think that you could get away with that much of it today.
0: And then Josh makes that um, joke about caving like the Buffalo Bills in the Super Bowl. Like at the time, that joke made a lot of sense. A kid now wouldn't know what that meant because the Buffalo Bills have sort of been a practice in futility. As of a lot of teams in the AFC East have, my beloved Dolphins included, um, because New England has sort of had a stranglehold on the division. But a kid now wouldn't have any idea what that is because, unlike us, they don't know who Jim Kelly is. They didn't grow up watching Jim Kelly play. They didn't watch Buffalo go to all of those Super Bowls. And unfortunately for them, you know, not win any of them. But... It makes sense that that Islander logo is in the movie because Judd Apatow is from here. Right. Um, the Judd Apatow film Adventureland is based on a little fun park that we have here called Adventureland. And it was his summer job, obviously, in that movie. It's a full theme park. Here, it's it's really just a little kiddie park, a handful of rides and some games and balloons.
2: It's a glorified carnival.
0: It's, But it's it's a staple for here, though. Like, if... You would be heartbroken if you found out that it closed.
2: Oh, yeah. So, like... But part of the fun is, like, getting on those rides and not knowing if you're actually going to live. Right. They're kind of janky.
0: Yes. But I think that Apatow has... over the, It's it's he, it's like Kevin Smith always has the New Jersey reference. Mm-hmm. I feel like Apatow, in his own way has referenced home in a lot of his movies with this one being the outlier where he overtly says Jerry's from Long Island.
2: Well, I think I want to hit on something Luke said too because I didn't realize it until you brought it up just now is that there were so many of those different team jerseys, particularly on the bus scene when they first arrive, and it's such a subtle touch to show that these kids are coming from far and wide to go to this camp. Um, And that was one of the things that I couldn't figure out was why they had a recruiter. I mean, I I kind of get like for the sake of the story why they had a third party so he didn't lash out at his parents. But you didn't need this extra. Like to me, I could see Tony Perkis sending somebody out because he wanted to create this little army to sell his videos and create all of these success stories. But I was like, why is this random person? Like, why is this not like what Disney used to do? Just send out the DVD, the promotional item.
1: So Roger Johnson, that's the character's name, is my, one of the things that the more I watch it and the older I get, I'm like, what is your job? Right. I, I kind of want that job. Just go. Are you a door to door camp salesman? Cause that's <laughs> kind of cool. Uh, if not, if you work for Camp Hope, Camp Hope must be rolling in it. They must be raking in the dough because they, they they have a recruiter for a camp. That's it's just that that part is always amazing to me, and it's always amazing to see Jeffrey Tambor like you know in anything. And so to see him as Jerry's dad is such a cool thing every single time I see it.
0: Yes, and you have the paneling and the wallpaper as if we didn't get any more nineties. I mean that. That living room just screams the mid-90s. It, and it
2: screams Long Island.
0: Yeah, It, it really we does. I, I will say that um, I think that set in particular, when you think about what is, you know, those, the double doors that mm-hmm. lead it, you know, like that was very quintessential 90s, 80s and 90s here. For sure. So it absolutely fits the setting. Um Moving on to the flight, you know, there's a lot of dialogue in this movie that when the movie came out was sort of startling. I mentioned that before with some of the language. But you go back and you watch it now Um, when Roy meets Jerry for the first time. And, you know, 25 years later, I think that especially with the advent of social media, people have become ultra aware of things that, it's very easy to say when you hide behind a keyboard. It's very different when you say something face-to-face with somebody. So I don't think that this is meant to hurt anybody. I don't think it's meant offensively, at least at the time that the movie came out. But because cyberbullying and body shaming in particular have become such a hot topic, button conversation as of late. I don't know that somebody in a Disney movie is going to go, are you going to fat camp? And the person goes, no, why? They go, because you're fat. I don't know that that sort of dialogue would exist in a Disney movie if you were to write something today.
2: Well, it's also just the assumption that he's going to fat camp, right? Is like, that's his icebreaker. You look large. Are you going to the same place? I mean, I guess it's... It's not any less offensive, but it's I guess slightly more acceptable because he is in the same situation. I I mean I'm not I'm not saying that it's okay because that would never fly now, but because I know his name is Roy, but I just want to call him Keen. Russ Tyler. <laughs> no, Russ Tyler. It's the same thing. And the fact that he shot this in between D2 and 3, they just, this could have been a spinoff. He could have had a summer vacation and then gone back to the team. Maybe, maybe he was going for a faster knuckle puck by shedding a couple of pounds. But anyway, um, I, I get what they were trying to do by having Roy ask Jerry and just assuming that they were in the same boat, but it would never happen now.
1: No, I think the delivery is good though. Like Keenan, Keenan delivers that really well. It's very like matter of factly. And I, I think that that helps it now, but you're right. Like that, that language probably wouldn't fly today.
0: I think it comes off more like a kid say the darndest things because then he points out the guy that's sitting next to him and goes, is that your father? Yeah. Know why do you say Cause he's fat too. But uh, yeah, I think certainly now, um, i I wonder if if an if a modern audience, if a 9-year-old now watching this movie is going to understand that it comes off comedically and not so much as an attack on Jerry's character. Right. So you get to the airport, you have the other campers, they're all gathering and here comes here comes Pat Finley. We have to talk about Pat here. He shows up on the bus. And and basically from the moment he picks them up to the moment you get to Camp Hope. I know I com- I, I compared the films to f- before. Does he not remind you of Henry from Blank Check? Totally. And I think that he's probably, other than Jerry, who of course is your lead, Pat immediately, for me,
2: becomes the most likable character in the movie. Absolutely. I think it's also where this, ki- this movie kind of breaks the mold too because normally they use summer camp as kind of a trope. I, I mean, maybe maybe that's just me in the 90s movies that I watched, but I always felt like it was the place that kids didn't want to go. And it was like the counselors had to win them over or like, like Camp Nowhere, you mentioned before, that was my camp movie. Totally different story, totally different scenario. But I always felt like there was sort of a negative connotation associated with having to go to camp. And here it's totally different because the kids really embrace it. They're all getting along with the counselors and even the owners, too. They they were so beloved.
0: Let's talk about when they get off the bus because Luke mentioned the jerseys earlier can we talk about paul feig in a crop top and jorts for just a second
1: it's it's an amazing visual and him dancing and like showing off his buns so i mean a so 90s but b just an incredible scene uh and then when nurse julie walks by and he just like points up and and is talking about the bald eagle like it's 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 a great scene i love that scene so
2: much it is and, and that is all you get to say about Paul Feig. I just have to preface this because you're going to give our listeners alcohol poisoning. No. You are not allowed to bring it up.
0: No, I'm not going
2: to. I'm shutting it down. Otherwise, Luke, you got like a, a Grease reference and then you can relate it to somehow working in film. But you got this. I'm tapping out.
0: I, I, you know what? Feig, seeing him here, I mean, he did write and direct one of the great comedies of our time, Bridesmaids. I believe he wrote that. This is true. I mean, so to see, like, these are very much... I mean, if he didn't write it, he at least directed it. I mean, these are humble beginnings. But even, like, his his body language, like you brought up, Luke, just a moment ago, he goes from dancing and shaking his buns to talking about the bald eagle. Similar to Apatow, you can see the lineage of his version of comedy and how that has later played out to define his career, even as a director.
2: He directed Bridesmaids, did not write it. He wrote Freaks and Geeks, though.
0: That makes all the sense in the world. And, and Freaks and Geeks, not too long after this film came out.
2: I have to say, Ghostbusters aside, he is a much better writer and director than he is an actor. Because throughout this movie, his actions and delivery are just so 101 like if you watch him in all of his background scenes he is just so over the top
0: from the minute you get onto property you do believe that this is going to be the best summer ever yes you're so wrong you're so wrong you get the bushkins they show up they look like they're ready for Boca, and you find out quickly not to let other people write your checks because now we get Tony Perkis. I think Ben Stiller is I mean, we talked before, you know, Luke brought up dodgeball. I mean, Ben Stiller, he's he's perfection. First off, he's in incredible shape for this film. I mean, he really did pack it on. I buy him as a fitness guru, but he is the absolute perfect villain for this movie.
2: He's great. The only other person I could think of casting-wise that may have been able to pull off something like this was Matthew McConaughey. Not saying he would have been as good, but th- because he, he would have lacked the quirkiness that Ben Stiller brings to it, but I, I don't know why, for some reason, I thought of him.
0: I think McConaughey, at this point in time, you're still only a couple of years removed from Dazed and Confused. I don't know if he's... I mean, not that Ben Stiller... I mean, he had done reality bites. I think by now, I mean he wasn't a mega star, but he was a name. I think more so than Matthew McConaughey. I don't know that McConaughey, as funny as he as he is and as funny as he was in Dazed and Confused, with all right, all right, all right. I don't know though. So here's the thing: McConaughey in shape. I really do buy as a fitness guru. I mean, I just said I I buy Stiller here. In that role, but it's but it, he B- Ben Stiller still pulls it off his tongue in cheek. I don't know that Matthew McConaughey, as talented as he is, has the comedic prowess that Ben Stiller has to pull this off. It's it's interesting casting though.
2: I guess he just would have played it a little bit more. It, it, he would have been unassuming here, and and I'm not saying this is a critique. I am uncomfortable as soon as he comes on screen. He's so positive. He's so energetic. But there's just something about it that you don't trust, which is but great because you're not supposed yeah, to.
1: Exactly. And I think that the, the line that I that sticks with me and gets me every single time is, um, having been homeschooled for the entirety of my my life, I'm looking forward to interacting with children for the first time. I absolutely <laughs> love that line. And it's delivered perfectly and it it tells you everything you need to know about Tony Perkis.
0: Yeah, because it's it's thrown in there for obviously for comedic purpose, but it also goes to show that this is somebody who is completely out of touch with reality. So, you know, he's a fish out of water.
2: And it also kind of sets up that at the end of the day, he's sort of a petulant child himself because probably because he lacked those skills of, of, you know, getting along with other kids. He hasn't been exposed to them enough.
0: I love how magically, also, because now he starts to introduce the members of his team, how other than him, every fitness buff from the 90s came from Austria. (laughs) (laughs) Up to and including Lars in this movie.
2: I mean, can you blame them? Arnold Schwarzenegger was like at the height of his popularity at this point. I don't know, in the
0: mid-90s? Arnold was getting ready to do Jingle all the way. He just came off a
2: junior. I don't know that he was quite... That's this, what I'm saying. Like he's it was the, the bat- height of his popularity. Then he went down before he became the governor. Terminator was out. over.
0: <laughs> oh, I don't know. I mean, I mean, you saw it on Saturday Night Live with We're Gonna Pump You Up with Kevin Nealon. Like, it was just such a thing in the 90s. Yeah,
2: it's true. No, it's totally true.
1: It really was. And I think Lars plays a, just such a great sidekick to Tony because he's kind of just... And I think that it, it, the, the foreignness of him and that Lars, you know, what kind of name is that? Where are you from? Far away. Um, it, <laughs> it plays perfectly because, you know, Tony needs somebody who's going to be on his side kind of blindly. And you feel like Lars is that person, you know, all the way up until he's taking a sledgehammer to Tony with a block of ice while he's laying on a bed of nails. You know, that's how blind Lars is uh, in Tony's pocket. So uh, he's a perfect, perfect sidekick.
2: Right, without being too much of like a secondary villain because he's not mean in his own right. It's all motivated through Tony.
1: Because at the end of the day, he's going to turn back on Tony, right? He right. He's kind of on their side at the end of the of the film.
0: Right, but it doesn't stop him from still going along with Tony's schemes. Like when they're gliding back and forth, I'm feeling skinny Tony. <laughs> There's so much about him that is great. And... He delivers what Lawson... And I'm speaking on your behalf. What Lawson and I believe becomes one of the most iconic lines in the history of any Disney film. Buddy! Buddy! <laughs> this also is why he and I have been friends for so long and will be for life. The body system. I, this does not get old in 25 years. This does not get old for me. Up to and including the setup where he pushes those two kids into the water to go talk to Nurse Julie and say to her, it's the joke that's over the head of a child, he's got an issue with his sciatic nerve and he needs her to massage it for him and she will pencil him in.
2: She's not really going to pencil image uh, so I wait that. let's let's back up a little bit is that how you two greet each other like i just want to paint this picture here like it's 4 a.m you guys are about to get to your corral it's pitch black
0: the last and out time, of the
2: sea of runners buddy
0: the last time i saw luke in person did you or did you not scream that at me at 4 15 yeah. in the morning at um at oh uh, no it wasn't even at wide world it was at it was in the magic kingdom parking lot
1: Yes, it was. And, and yes, and we raised our hands like we were signaling to each other that we were each other's <laughs> buddy. Yes. My favorite part of that scene, if you watch closely, Josh is sitting on the dock by himself and every other person like takes a hand and lifts it up and says, here's my buddy. Josh is sitting there and just nonchalantly throwing his hand up by himself going, buddy, like he doesn't care at all. I, I love Josh um, Goldberg. Yes, One of my favorite characters. But that part gets me every single time, too.
2: It's such a shame, the fall from grace that Sean Weiss, the actor who played him, has had. Because, I mean, who did not love Goldberg and The Mighty Ducks? Come on. But you're right. He is kind of always that guy that's just like, he's part of the team, but he's doing his own thing.
0: And then you get the, again, so typical of the 90s, the completely uncoordinated sports montage where every activity they try to put these kids through They slip and fall. They trip all over each other. They are the least convincing athletes on Earth because we didn't already know that they had a weight loss camp.
2: This is where things start to go off of the rails a little bit for me because I feel like with some of the secondary characters, this would have been a good subplot to build on because by the time we get to the end, they take down Tony and then they still have to compete against the other camp. And by the time we get there, I'm thinking to myself, like Tony's the climax of the film, they take him down, then what? And then I almost feel like it's almost like a whole secondary ending because you forget that they still have to go through this competition. I feel like this is where they needed to start Building on that a little bit more
1: I do like that because I think that there Are some really really strong secondary Characters that they don't ever explore right Like I love Nicholas being from England And I love yes. Philip, like Philip wearing the Le Miz shirt during The dance freaking yeah. love that I love Cody um, I think my Favorite is Sims uh, who I think had could have had Like one of the most impactful character moments In the film if he never said a word The entire time um, They They break that when they break into Tony's Cabin, however, I think that you're right, Jackie. Like It would have been great to kind of explore those other characters and have them play a role in the Apache Relay more than what we saw.
2: Yeah, especially because they sort of follow through on it with Josh when he has to shave the balloon. We've seen him shaving. You kind of get it. It's more done ironically that the kid from England knows the U.S. history, although that that is a social commentary <laughs> that still holds up to this day. Fairly accurate, <laughs> um, but I wish we had seen it from the rest of them, and that the rest of them had more of a stake because you knew they all wanted to take Tony down. But like, I would have liked to see more of like more more man versus himself from the rest of the kids.
0: And I think that if this movie has any shortcomings for me that's one of them. Because I think if you look at other camp films, right? Like you mentioned earlier, Luke, Wet Hot American Summer. I feel like for the most part, they make total use of the background and secondary characters. Because at the end of the day, I mean, you can even say, not that it's a camp film, but we mentioned Dazed and Confused before. These are all some of, you know... uh, they they all came out around the same time, but they're all those coming-of-age movies. I mean, this movie, in its own way, is sort of a coming-of-age movie. If you want to go back even further and talk about a camp movie, talk about Meatballs with Bill Murray. It just doesn't matter. I mean, there are secondary characters in that film that I think get fleshed out better than they do here, so I think there's definitely something to be said for... This was a miss. In in that aspect, I think there was definitely a miss.
2: It doesn't drag the entire thing down. It's just an area I wish they had built on.
1: I think that where you you make up for that in this film is the villain and having Ben Stiller be that constant, just kind of nutball who's always there, who you know is going to have something else up his sleeve. You know, when they when we finally get to the hike, you kind of are not rooting you're definitely rooting for the kids but you're like this can't get any worse right so i think that that's where they they kind of make up for those secondary
2: characters
0: right definitely they do their way in and it's something that i i never noticed this I, i didn't notice it until last night where they're going through and they're putting the kids on the scale and it just goes to show too with tony how He's interested in working with children for the first time, but because he's obsessed with selling a video, these kids are just a number. They're just a statistic because throughout the entire film, he says, Garner, Gerald, age 11, 141 pounds. He says it a few times because that's all Jerry is. He's just whatever it is he reads on his ID card. But I didn't notice until last night when Jerry leaves school on the last day, and he misses his bus it's a it says on there i don't remember the exact name of the school such and such high school so he's an 11-year-old trying to get on a bus from high school i don't know about you maybe jerry's a genius but <laughs> i think i was still in the 5th grade when i was age 11
2: yeah I, I was i think i was middle school by then but yeah you're, you're the right. smart it's one in certain, the group no, I'm just old. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, you're right. It, it, it's certainly not high school. That might have just been straight up production error if they rented a bus from somewhere. So nice catch on that.
0: Moving ahead here, we need to talk about this dance scene. It is one of the most pivotal scenes in this movie because you feel so bad for them at this dance, especially because Jerry has written this letter to his grandmother. And he basically laid it out saying, Tony did this intentionally to humiliate us into wanting to lose weight. And after Paul Feig dances like a fool and gets Pat and Julie involved, now the kids are having fun. And like, it's the first time since the Bushkins left that you've actually seen the kids enjoy themselves. And it's the first time that you've actually seen Camp Hope for what it is supposed to be. And the minute Tony sees it's fun... He just shuts it down.
2: Unpopular opinion here. I appreciate what you're saying that we finally see these kids get to let loose, but I'm going to be the killjoy here. I feel like this dance should have been so much more awkward. And I get that we don't want to necessarily play into the hand that Tony dealt, but at the same time, I feel like it may have been more effective if maybe the girls did make them feel bad and did not not put them down per se, but if they just sort of like internalize no girl wants to dance with me. And then it actually does incentivize them to want to do the right thing and do what they came to camp for and motivates them to lose the weight themselves. But then it would create more of a conflict with Tony because they want to spite him. And then they have to start packing on pounds because they don't want him to succeed. I feel like that would have created a lot more tension and a lot more conflict with Tony. Because here, as much as it's nice to see them all having fun, they end up gaining weight anyway. So I feel like we needed kind of more of a reason why this program isn't working other than Tony's full of it.
1: I like that. Yeah, I think that could create some good conflict. Um, this scene to me is, is all about one thing. And I could conservatively talk about three hours on this topic, which <laughs> is the wardrobe in this scene.
2: Yes. Yes.
1: It's incredible. Uh, Philip with the Les Mis shirt and the beret. You got Jerry who's wearing shorts, a shirt, a tie and a blazer. Uh, you've got Lars with the weird turtleneck and shirt with a <laughs> collar and a vest. It's incredible. Like that is, this scene is eye-catching to me because of the wardrobe.
2: That so, is straight up 90s wardrobe. It is. So
0: so you're saying like, if we would have taken this scene and given it your idea of having to practice the self-control. So let's say instead of the bonfire after they capture Tony, we slide the dance scene in. And because Tony's not there to sabotage it, Pat is the one that says we have to practice self-control. Watch what, Look at what happened last night. You think it would have better served the movie.
2: Yes, because just by virtue of being... At the camp, I mean, this is why they go there, right? Most weight loss camps, I mean, Tony's regimen is absolutely insane, right? It's Yeah, it, it's almost like a boot camp for them, or that's what he's trying to make it. Most of these camps, just by virtue of being there, it's getting them out of the house. It's getting kids physically active. They'll drop a few pounds just by being there and interacting with other kids and getting them out of their day-to-day routine. And, you know, you're not in school. You're not sitting at a desk all day. It's bound to happen. So when these kids start putting on weight, they haven't gotten to the point yet where they're, getting the junk food from the tree stump it's all before right so i feel like if maybe you had created more of a conflict and they're trying to spite tony it would have been more effective without even having to rearrange everything and this is why i will always make a point of saying that i work in television and film not no seriously it is not to sound pretentious but it's because this is how my brain is wired it's to question everything and, and to make sure that it works. And in this case, it doesn't for me.
1: And I say every time that you do bring that up and there's a point to it, it's like, oh, that's right. That script could have had this turn that could have made this make more sense. So I always appreciate that. And you're absolutely right. This could have been the moment that they decide to kind of thwart all of the plans that Tony has.
2: And that could also go back to what we talked about before, where then you're giving more of the background characters a little bit more substance.
0: Speaking of the script and some of Tony's dialogue, I didn't catch it the first time we watched it this week in spite of the fact that I've been watching this movie for a long time. And it should have stood out to me like a sore thumb. When the dance ends and he's thanking everybody for coming and he says to the girls, I know this hasn't been easy. Oh, boy, what a rough line.
2: I never even caught that because the other thing that I don't want to gloss over either is the, the budding romance. I think it's really sweet between Pat and um, Julie, Julie. Yes.
1: I thought you were going to say Sam and the girl from the camp who are making out at the end of the dance for whatever reason.
2: Well, good for Sam.
1: Right. Good for Sam. Uh, But you know, Pat and Julie, it's, it's such a cute uh, moment when, you know, she's, she's talking about the the boys and the girls and he's like, ha, you know, boys who are afraid of girls. That's just so funny. And she's like, well, do you want to dance? And he's like, I do, I can't, you know, it's, it's a great moment. And they're, you're right. Their romance is really good throughout the whole film.
2: I also like that. It shows us rather than tells us because they've driven it home so many times at this point that Pat has been at the camp for, what is it? 18 years. And now we can kind of see why, is that he's very much in his head. This I will also give to Paul Fieg because his eccentricities work in this one with, with that 90s dancing, a term I will use loosely. And I also think that the whole Pat
0: and Julie storyline really starts to work here too, because I think now you're in the mid 90s. I think that there was certainly a trope of the guy, you know, who had a thing for the girl who he felt was out of his league. I mean, and that goes back, I mean, obviously much further than the 80s, but one movie that stands out to me in particular is Fast Times at Richmond High. We mentioned it last week. No, every time you hear Jackson Brown serenade us with somebody's baby, you think about... Fast Times at Richmond High. You think of Jennifer Jason Lee. You think about how she was sort of the girl that was out of out of their league. And how finally by the end of the movie she sees that there's more to her little social circle than what she, you know, because her her whole motivation in that movie is to grow up too fast. Mm-hmm. And In this case, it's sort of an interesting thing because it's the guy pining over the girl, but the girl is looking at the older guy or the buff guy, and it's not until the end of the movie that she realizes, you know what, maybe the right person for me is this person that's been here all along. In this case, you have Julie, who kind of is crushing on Pat, that doesn't drag on until the end of the movie and she realizes it's not like she had a thing for Lars or a thing for Tony or even even a thing for Tim. And she realized, okay, that's not really the person for me. It's really been Pat all along. So I like the sort of role reversal that you're seeing here.
2: Well, I think, again, a little subplot would have gone a long way because at the end of the day, whether you shed one pound or 10 or nothing. This is about confidence. And that's really what Pat had to learn. And that's what Julie brings out of him. And I feel like that would have been effective for the kids too, is even if they didn't necessarily do what they came to do, they got confidence out of it. And they do sort of get that from bringing Tony down, but it doesn't apply to their initial obstacle and why they're there in the first place. There's no... It almost doesn't give you that full character arc.
0: Let's talk about Pat a little bit more because the scene that you get after the dance is done is when Jerry goes to the go-kart track. And Pat's there, and Pat pushes him around the go-kart track, but he's talking to Jerry. Jerry's upset that he couldn't drive the go-karts. And Pat says to him, you, you really like these, huh? And in what is... Probably the best writing of the film, because for a lack of better term, it's the first time you really take the movie seriously. It's when Jerry says, I'm slow. This is my chance to go fast. I've never gone fast before. This is where the movie really starts to turn tonally. And it starts to flesh out Pat as being a very caring person, other than just a good counselor but it starts to really flesh out some of the confidence that Jerry's lacking other than he's intimidated by the girls because he did not want to go to Camp Hope. He wanted to stay home and hang out and he was very staunch against, as he had put it, fat camp, I'm not going. This is the first time that you really see that he does sort of lack that confidence in
2: himself. It gives him more of a stock in why he's there. Moving forward
0: with some of the scenes and some of the dialogue when you get Tony. Because now Tony is really starting to go off the rails a little bit as he's getting more and more frustrated that his program looks like it's not working, it's going to be a flop, and he's not going to be able to sell his 50,000 units. He starts really berating people, you know, at, at Camp Hope, where... He calls the kids fat kids. But then he says to, you know, Pat, the fat man's going to talk to me about fitness. It's not that you needed to demonize Tony any more than you already had, but I think up to this point, even up to and including the dance scene, Tony is a villain, but he's a very eccentric villain. This is the first time you see any sort of evil or in, you know, really deliberate malice there. I also, similar to some of the other dialogue, I'm not necessarily sure that in a Disney film that's going to fly today.
2: I feel like part of this is because in the writing they never really commit one way or the other. They said, you know, like we talked about before, that Tony was basically homeschooled, he was alone, and they do make mention, you know, when he's preaching to them, I was you and I want to, you know get you to where I'm at now I never really bought that from him I think that that was a selling device for his product and that was it I don't buy that he was overweight and this is why he's here now I think it's just this is what I can do with daddy's money Um, so it doesn't come out here that he's yelling at them because he's really yelling at himself Maybe that's what the intent was, but they didn't give us enough to connect those dots as to whether or not it was true that he was an overweight child.
0: I'd also like to call to everyone's attention that when Nurse Julie says that she's got friends in Child Protective Services, I think given the circumstances, they probably would not wait two weeks to get to Camp Hope. Correct. At this point, they would have been all over this Now the kids, they go on this hike. We started to talk about the hike before, right? Because the kids are on the hike when Julie, Tim, and Pat are trying to figure out how to take the camp back.
2: We also need to back up for a second because this is a big plot hole that bothers me. Okay. We don't know. Josh is back now. Right. We don't know where he really went. Well, And that kind of seemed super unmotivated to have him disappear like that.
0: Other than he went home and closed down the all-you-can-eat buffet which again yeah probably not something you're gonna hear in a movie nowadays
1: yeah that's one of the the scenes that always kind of bothers me now watching it is that he he disappears okay i get that then he doesn't want to be there however his dad threatens to sue tony so that he can get back so then he gets back and he talks about how great it was when he was out so I think as a a character choice, it doesn't make any sense to have him come back unless he was like, you know, I I came back to avenge everything and to help you all take this guy down or something like that.
2: Or because he really wanted to lose weight. Right. Because you don't really get that impression either when he's talking about how great it was on the outside.
0: Or if he doesn't want to lose weight, if, if he does not want to partake in Tony's protocol he knows that he's basically bulletproof. Because Tony has been threatened to be sued, there's almost nothing he can do that's going to get him thrown out of camp again. Now that he's been on the outside, not that they blindfold you to take you to Camp Hope, but now that he's been on the outside and he's sort of seen the literal in and out of the property, it would have made more sense if he was the one that was smuggling the junk food in because he literally had nothing to lose.
2: Or he orchestrated it.
1: Yeah. Instead, we get Kevin McAllister's brother, Buzz, yeah. <laughs> uh, sneaking the food in, which I, I only call that character Buzz because I don't know his name, but it looks exactly like the same actor.
2: No, and what a Buzz thing to do.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And he was one of those actors that was just like in the 90s everything.
2: Yes. Mm-hmm.
1: He's also the one that rats out the chipmunks, which I just mm-hmm. I hate that. But I'm, I'm like, why would you tell on being a chipmunk last year? I, it that that bothers me as well. We also skipped over the scene that uh, that also bothers me now watching it, which is when they sneak into Tony's cabin to get the letters.
0: OK, so we right? never and, did talk about this.
1: Yeah. And, and that's that's OK, because it it is my least favorite scene, mainly because Tony's run lasts way too short. It's not long at all. For for Uh, two
0: people on a running team, I I agree with you.
1: Yeah, he's also, like, lifting a log and doing push-ups and and all of that stuff. Although it does give us the line, come here, you devil log, which I love. (laughs) Um, And then you you have the unnecessary fart joke at the end, which is for the kids and the audience, I guess. But that whole scene, I'm like, I don't think they need that as motivation to want to get Tony back. It's a nice thing to know that their letters weren't getting out. However, I think that they have enough motivation at this point to want to take him down.
0: I think had it not been for them finding the letters, that scene is completely useless. I think having that in there is the only thing that makes, I, it's the only thing that, I'm not even going to say it moves the story forward. It's the only thing that fleshes out Tony a little bit more as a villain, because up to that point, he's still too much of a cheese ball for things like, get here, get over here, you devil log.
2: I feel I agree with both of you. I feel like you could totally do without it and I feel like this is like a classic salute your shorts duping ug uh, sneaking in where we're not supposed to kind of thing. And I feel like it would have been more effective if maybe they discovered the letters once they already had Tony. Because it's like you know, you you've gotten a step ahead. You've captured him. You're going to take him down okay how and then you realize how diabolical he really is because your cries for help are not even close to being answered
1: yeah that could have been how they convinced the other you know however many other people were in that camp which we never really see it's a little unclear but how they convinced the entire camp to keep him locked up is by look he's been holding all of our letters the entire summer
2: or even the counselors because that's something that doesn't always necessarily sit well with me either I mean, they realize Tony's horrible and they want to get him out, too. But it's like you could potentially lose your job. So why are you willing to risk that? And like somebody's got to be the adult here. And, and Pat sort of teeters on it a little bit. But nobody's the voice of reason, really, as far as you can't just kidnap Tony and you you can't like what are we going to do with him now they they kind of tiptoe that line but then then Pat turns and it doesn't matter
0: right and that all happens after this hiking right, scene sorry. no no no, it's all good It it happens after this hiking scene where the kids trap him and you see that Tony I mean Tony truly is out of his mind because he thinks that these kids can do a 20 mile hike the fact that any child I don't care what shape they're in is going to be able to do a 20 mile hike is ludicrous within itself.
2: With no food, no water, and all you would need nowadays was a cell phone to have him locked away.
0: But even more so than that, though, it shows just how off the rails he is because he jumps off the cliff, he gets on that limb, and he's hanging off the side of the rock right before he says, we're going to go climb that thousand-foot rock wall. It's... It... As crazy as it is, I I think it makes sense to see Tony because we buy that Tony's nuts. But I think part of this is, and I think it's understated, Tony now is slowly starting to go off the rails because it's not only that he sees that his program isn't working because this is what happens post-weigh-in when he figures out the kids have been cheating. This is very much him and his greed concerned about how can I sell this video?
2: Right.
1: I think you also get a really good sense of, uh, of the Apatow-ness um, when we talk about his dialogue um, going off the rails a little bit with the Icarus story yes. that is not the story of Icarus. I-, I love that little hint of, hey, he he doesn't know what he's talking about. He's just making stuff up as he goes along. I feel like that's a very Apatow-type thing to just put into a movie. And if you didn't know, you know those two separate Greek mythology stories that he combined, it's It's
0: pretty genius writing, I think. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. And they trap him. (laughs) They get him back into the cage. Yankee doodles. Pat's going to do nothing to stop them. Tim, Julie will do nothing to stop him. But what I love most here is that, as Luke teased earlier, they get Lars to turn on Tony because they say, if you have no job, you get deported. Again, <laughs> not a joke that's going to be made very often in a Disney movie, but because it's Judd Apatow, it makes an awful lot of sense. And I love the fact that he's, not only does he does he join their side, but he looks at them and he goes, I love you. <laughs> because Lars within within himself, because he's a caricature, is sort of, I mean, he's very funny just as a spoof of that 90s trope. But I like how as the movie goes on, especially towards the end, they do a little bit more with Lars, and it makes him quite a bit more likable as a character.
2: The I love you is not as good as Tim Curry in Home Alone 2, but it's darn close. So
0: they expose the camp for what it really is. Let's talk for a second here about Ben Stiller in a dual role. Because he gets taken out, and this is now his father, quote unquote, father comes to take him away and appease the parents and save himself from a loss uh, from a lawsuit. Obviously, irony of ironies, his father is in this movie right. when he plays Murray, but uh, or or Maury, I should say. But they have him in a bald cap and the like, the the tracksuit. That they have him in, and I have to imagine that a lot of what he is saying in that velour tracksuit is like totally improv. I, I would think. have to imagine, but he makes sense as the lighting king of Western Pennsylvania, whatever it is. But he gets him out of the out of trouble, and that's where you think the movie's going to end because up until this point, you become so obsessed with the idea that the kids are going to beat Tony or that they have to beat Tony you completely forget about the Apache Relay.
2: That's where it comes down to the screenwriting. It, you do forget about the Apache Relay. I don't know if that was intentional. I don't think so, because then it's sort of, there. there's not enough breadcrumbs that led us there.
1: Yeah, and I have a lot of, um, I wouldn't say issues, but there, there is a lot in the Apache Relay that I don't love. So I would have, been fine if they just lived out the rest of their summer in bliss without Tony. Um, but the fact that we do get the Apache relay, I think does, it does try to bring back some of those character tropes that we saw from some of the characters like Josh, like you talked about or Nicholas being very smart, but you, you have a lot of things that I don't love that the most of which is that you let the person who has admittedly never driven a go-kart, do your the big most important task of driving the go-kart at the end. I get it for the hero moment, but it doesn't make sense in practicality.
2: No, you're absolutely right. And I feel like they could have maybe done something with the relay. I mean, granted, it doesn't necessarily line up with the goals of this other athletic camp, but it's like now's the point where especially because you think it was ending – with taking down Tony, now you've got this whole other set of obstacles. We should be seeing now what the characters learned throughout the film. Like for example, when they, when they all decide that they do want to make an honest try of this and Julie starts teaching them the cooking class. There's like this whole montage of what they are doing. That's on the right path. I feel like we should have seen that applied here. Like now take what you learned and go do something with it. They, or or even if they had done like sort of um, like a Mighty Ducks kind of thing. Like almost all of the secondary characters had someone specific in Germany that they had like a personal battle with. And we had the opportunity to do that here during the baseball game where if maybe one kid from from the other camp was like really bullying somebody from Camp Hope or, you know, like you usually get those little subplots and little battles between two characters, I would have really liked to see that come full circle here.
0: I think if I have any issue with any of this, it's not even so much the screenwriting and that we forget about the Apache relay because it does become like a subplot of the film. And I certainly don't mind the fact that the kids have this, all right, we're going to give it a try moment. If I have any issue whatsoever, it's that I think that it's, it's a ripoff of Meatballs. Because the way that Meatballs ends, there's like a decathlon, Woody the Wabbit, Woody the Wabbit, Woody the Wabbit, where it's a it's not a go kart race, but it's a foot race, and they do defeat the other camp at the end, and that's where Bill Murray has his, you know, he's he's got his shining moment with his with with the cat, you know, with the camper that he took under his wing. I would have almost been fine, like if they give Jerry the keys to the go kart, he's never driven it before, but it's the one thing he wanted. Like if that's his adventure out of this. And the movie ended more like Bad News Bears where they don't actually win, but he got to do what it was he wanted to do this summer because I feel like that theme would fit with this movie where it's like, you know what? Being being the winner from Camp MVP isn't everything. And they try to like accomplish that goal when they throw the cup into the lake, but it may have served a better purpose if they didn't actually win the Apache Relay.
2: I'm almost wondering if because this is almost sort of like a genre that Disney was like, okay, the script is great, but we need a camp moment. We need a relay race. And that's why this is kind of thrown in and tacked on at the end.
0: I mean, I certainly don't mind that they won. I think the end of the movie is just fine. But I mean, that's the thing. I see both sides of it the one really bad piece of writing and I cringed in 1995 and I'm cringing 25 years later when they throw the cup in the water and they say, are you crazy? And he goes, yeah, crazy about my gal and Pat dips Julie. That is one of the worst lines ever put to paper in cinema.
2: If it was in The Rocketeer, I'd be all about it. It has no place here. See, because in The
0: Rocketeer, it's, that movie within itself, is it's a little tongue-in-cheek.
2: But it's also a period piece. Right. This is the 90s. Nobody talks like that, even if you're a hipster. Before we get to our final synopsis, there is another part of the ending that doesn't really add up for me, and this is even before we get to the Apache Relay. It's that they have this blackmail video, right? And that's ultimately how... Camp Hell. Yeah, they they get rid of Tony and they, you know, they recut it with the help of, uh, what's his name? Tony oh. the camera
0: guy. Kenny yes. the camera guy. Your one buddy. of the Happy Madison guys. Yes, yep. who
2: you're going to have to tell that story later, your buddy. So they go through all this trouble of recutting the video and Nurse Julie, like, plays this... You know, she's she's got the cry for help going to the camera of like things aren't what they seem here. And they have the blackmail. But. Tony sort of takes himself out of it anyway, because he does all the backflips and then he gets hurt. So. Like, why? You didn't necessarily need to get hurt. They were going to they were going to nail him to the cross anyway and remove him from the camp by calling his daddy. So why did he need to get hurt? It just, it really didn't make a lot of sense, especially because they already made him vulnerable by falling into the pit, and then they locked him up. Like, you didn't really necessarily need to injure him. Or you could have just left it that he took himself out of the equation because he messed up.
0: I think, yeah. I, I understand the point that you're making. I do. So I don't, so no, I, I mean, I, I can't speak on behalf of Luke, so maybe... Maybe he hates you. I probably don't. I think... See, here's the thing. I think they're trying to show how off the rails he's gone. They're, they're trying to show the fact that he believes he's bulletproof. And well, he he's can smashing
2: make that- glass and stepping on it, which, yes. by the way, is lit so poorly, you barely even catch it. Right. So,
0: like, I, I understand what they were trying to do, but I will agree with you that it has always seemed over the top.
2: But I just, I kind of feel like one or the other. Either, like, they worked so hard to have this gotcha moment, and then he falls. Just, like, give them their moment.
1: So there is more to that scene. Have you seen the deleted scenes of, of this film?
2: I've not, no. no. Ah. And we so, have the DVD.
1: yeah. Damn, damn you
2: yep. Disney Plus. I know. You. We've fallen into such a bad habit of just watching on Disney Plus. We should have. We should have watched. So go watch, go
1: watch the uh, the deleted scenes. There is very visibly in the background of that scene there is a bow and arrow on the wall. He backflips into the wall, kind of does sort of hurt himself, but then he goes and he picks up a bow and arrow and he shoots Jeffrey Tambor with the bow and arrow. Oh my god. Which Disney cut
0: I mean, I understand why, but I wish they didn't.
2: I wish they cut out of it when Jeffrey Tambor punches him. Like, that would have been enough. Especially, you know, it's a full circle moment with Jerry that he didn't want to go to this camp in the first place and you ignored his plea and now his dad stands up. For it. They could have cut out of that scene right then and there. Instead, you left half of it in and you cut out what could have been a really interesting ending.
0: So is this now time to take a drink? But l- it wasn't me that said it, it was Luke. But it counts just the same. I'll drink. Cheers to, that. to the
1: controversy. Cheers to
0: the controversy. <laughs> I never knew that. We're gonna have to go back and watch that tonight.
1: I, d- I do want to touch on the end credit scene. Have we? Have you seen the end credit scene? Yes. yes. Oh my gosh! It is uh, a I think so out of character, and B, it makes me laugh so hard that they filmed that. That that was something that. They, they they decided to bring Ben Stiller back to do this one scene where he's selling crystals door to door.
0: Yeah, I mean, I mean, it makes sense because at the end of the day, Tony is a snow, uh, snake oil salesman. I mean, really, is what he is, but. It's not as good as him singing the milkshake song at the end of Dodgeball, but it is still pretty good. Okay, so final synopsis. I think it's only fair if we let our guest go first. Absolutely. Mr. Lawson, your final review here of 1995's Heavyweights.
1: Well, I appreciate that. And, you know, Heavyweights to me is a movie that is very close to my heart. There's a lot of my childhood that I can see in this film. I think that as I've watched it more and more, there are things that I catch about this movie that, I, that make it more endearing to me. There are background characters that I follow the arc of that are not main characters whatsoever. There are things that I notice about the wardrobe and about the scene changes and about the props that are being used. And I think that the more that I watch this film, the more that I appreciate the core story of a group of kids banding together. To accomplish something and to have, you know, the best damn summer of their life, and that to me is why I will always sing the praises of this film, and why, you know, I can quote things from this film to a complete stranger and they can become my friend, right? So this film does mean a lot to me for all of that. Um, at the end of the day, I think it holds up very well. I think that the script is great, the characters are endearing, and you have a soundtrack that's killer. So, end of the day, great
0: movie. I would agree. I think for some of the things that we pointed out earlier, certain things may not necessarily hold up to a modern audience that perhaps is a little bit more sensitive to certain things in in today's society that maybe were funny then. It's not that they're not funny now. It's just that a kid watching this movie for the first time at the age of seven, eight, nine, ten years old they they may not understand. The comedy of it, they may not understand, like, okay, this this was sort of a product of its time and it was funny. Then there are certain things that are funny now. But I think that in spite of the fact that certainly it is a product of the 90s, I think that the heart of the movie still holds up. I think the characters still hold up. I think it's an innocent movie. I think that there is enough of a message there where I think everybody can rally around it. Um, I think that as I grow older, it's a movie that I love more and more. I think a lot of that comes from the nostalgia. It's the same reason why I watch something like Blank Check, and I go, is an 11-year-old kid really going to cash a check for a million dollars and buy a mansion for... 230000 No, but I love the movie anyway. So I think that this movie, in spite of the fact that my mother said, I can't believe that's a Disney movie, and to this day she still can't believe this is a Disney movie. It makes a little bit more sense now knowing it's Judd Apatow, but I think this is still one of my favorites. I watch it every summer. It's no different than Weekend at Bernie's, The Sandlot, you know, a Summer Rental with John Candy. There are a handful of movies I will watch every summer. This is in the rotation and it always will be. And similarly, I have a complete stranger dressed as, Don, as Donald Duck come up to me at 4 o'clock in the morning and start <laughs> reciting it and it has been become a friend for life. And I, I think that's what makes these movies so special.
2: I didn't grow up in this, and it's definitely not one of my favorites, but I do agree with both of you, which may be surprising because I know I was definitely critical of this. I was pretty tough on it, but I think... It's more of like a tough love because I know what Apatow can be. I know how strong the screenwriting is. Freaks and Geeks is like the most idyllic, coming of age, growing pain series. It's so good. And even, you know, the later stuff like Knocked Up, This Is 40, everything else that he's put out, he really has stamped out his own brand of comedy. And, you know, if this was early on, like everybody's got to get their start somewhere. And he co-wrote this script. So I'm wondering if that's where, you know, for some of the weaker points they did maybe bring someone. And and I don't know. I wasn't able to find it. if If they had to bring in another writer to sort of balance him out and sort of try and fill in some holes but I I think even if that was the case there was still room for improvement here I think it could have been a little although it is paced well I think it could have been a little bit shorter but I think that also has to do with almost getting sort of like a false climax with the end taking out Tony and then still having to get through the relay or you know we talked about it other scenes could have been cut out entirely like breaking into Tony's cabin and, and they could have discovered the letters at another point so I definitely think that it could have used some tightening. But otherwise, I think it still holds up. Definitely, albeit a product of its generation. But um, I don't think you ever have to worry about it getting remade. Because they're just never going to. Because of the, the subject matter, it's just not going to happen. It's, it's too politically incorrect to do now
0: but we're interested in knowing what you have to say you can let us know your review of heavyweights on twitter instagram and facebook at monoreal radio you can also email us monoreal at gmail.com a huge huge thanks to our dear friend luke lawson for joining us on monoreal radio this week
1: hey i appreciate it so much guys you have no idea how much i love listening to the show it's like two friends talking about movies every week And um, I'm just so excited to be on here. So thank you so much for having me.
0: News this week. A lot of news, actually, this week. It was a busy week for Disney, starting with the golden anniversary, the 50th anniversary of the Disney archives. That was just yesterday. We mentioned last week D23 is doing that documentary or that docuseries hosted by Don Hahn for D23 Gold members it's amazing. You know, we talked about it. We did a bonus episode after we did our trip out to Disneyland, and we took a tour of the Disney studio lot, and we'll link that in the show notes. You can go listen to that if you missed it. It's amazing in 50 years how much they have collected and how much they have saved from the lineage that is Disney cinema. But what's almost as startling is how much was lost to time that we're never going to see again because there were no archives.
2: Right. The whole way that it got started was because they were ready to trash the Mary Poppins snow globe and then they realized what it was. So thank goodness it dawned on them to start. Preserving their history, and you know, look what it's led to—is you've got 50 years of all these amazing artifacts from not just the films, but from the parks as well. And now you've got a show like Prop Culture to highlight all of them.
0: Right, and if you guys missed our interview with Dan Lanigan, we did that just a couple of weeks ago. I'll link that in the show notes as well. Some parks Um, news—they announced. Well, there's some it listen, it's all good news that the parks are reopening, right? But we you and I are both excited and yet disappointed. Let's start with what we're excited about first.
2: I'm happy and excited that we get Disney in any capacity this year because yes. especially working with Magical Vacation Planner I see so much of my fellow travel agents having to cancel trips, yeah, because these were the once in a lifetime trips where people right. were going down with their families, and it was a lot of a lot of firsts for a lot of kiddos. So that's been really tough to watch how all of that's playing out, um, and having that inside look at it. But for for us, you know, we're just happy to go and experience it in any capacity. So for the first time ever we were going to get to go in October. We usually go November to celebrate our anniversary, but this year we happened to have a wedding in Tampa. So we decided to tack on a few extra days in October and finally get to do Mickey's not so scary Halloween because we've done Mickey's very Merry Christmas party and we absolutely love it. But we've heard so many great things about not so scary. We were like, we have to go. So
0: bought our tickets months ago
2: (laughs) before, before the pandemic, before the quarantine, uh so we are very happy that we get to still experience the food and wine festival that disney is giving us a bonus they're just when epcot opens so does the food and wine festival. so july 15th you're getting everything however there will be no eat to the beat which is understandable because it's going to draw a lot of crowds although i am disappointed because last year when we went in november we had such a great experience we saw joey fatone and friends And Johnny Damon, formerly of the New York Yankees, was in attendance. And we got to hang out with him for a little bit. That was awesome. We walked World Showcase with him. So that was such a happy memory. I'm kind of bummed that we're not going to get a concert. Um, But not nearly as disappointing as having to cough up Not So Scary Halloween. I get it, though. And I do applaud Disney for not just being greedy and trying to take people's money because the whole thing is that they can't do parades they can't do fireworks they can't do anything that's going to cause big gatherings yeah and that's a lot of what not so scary is so rather than try to give us like half the experience and still keep our money on those tickets I feel like they did the right thing as bummed out as I am they are doing right by their guests. Yeah, I mean, if I wanted
0: to spend $250 to get some M&Ms and some Snickers, I'd go to Costco and I'd load myself up for (laughs) a year or two or seven. But, I mean, look, am I disappointed? Of course I'm disappointed. But at the end of the day, it's like a sacrifice for the greater good. You're trying to get these parks open. You're trying to minimize the amount of large crowds and large gatherings because you're trying to prevent another spike from happening we're kind of seeing it now but you're trying to minimize it the best that you can so i think disney did the right thing am i disappointed yes am i on their side absolutely and now they have launched at least for existing reservations and for people that are trying to slide existing reservations around due to the pandemic they launched the online reservation system and i I'm just going to throw this out there. I need to laugh at you chuckleheads that sit there and cry and complain on Facebook and every forum and every form of social media possible when the server crashed. You have to understand something. And it was the same people that cried when Disney Plus had issues on their launch day. You know, the WWE Network had issues on their launch day. Nobody talks about it because it was not. I mean, it was a big deal. It very much was the first of its kind and has led the way with the streaming services specifically. But it wasn't met with the same scrutiny that Disney was because nothing is met with the same scrutiny that Disney is. When you have millions, and I can say confidently, millions of people all logging on to one website at the exact same time, what do you expect is going to happen? I understand it was frustrating for some people. Hey, look, I sat there and I had my 15-minute clock tick down to zero and reset to 15 minutes. It took two hours for us to make a reservation to go to Epcot because we already had our one-day ticket because we were going to do Food and Wine Festival, leave Epcot on the monorail, and jump on over to the kingdom for uh, not-so-scary I I understand it took a long time. I understand why people got frustrated. But when you logged on that morning, you had to know. You had to know that you were going to log in and there were going to be technical glitches. You know, it's very easy for people to sit there and criticize it. But you know what? It's life on the other side of that computer screen for those people at Disney, for those cast members that were trying to get those servers up and running, for the people that are trying to get people to abide by the face masks at Disney Springs and they'll face that same adversity in the parks, you have to look at it from their side too. And I think that this is a practice in, right now, if you cannot be patient with cast members and patient with the process, maybe you should consider pushing your trip back. I'm, and I'm not afraid to say that because, listen, we have always taken the side of the cast member. And these people work so hard. It's hot out. They miss every holiday with their families. The cast members are the most unsung heroes of any Disney property. If you can't be patient with your laptop when making a reservation – Maybe you won't be so patient with a cast member who's telling you, please keep your mask on. Please keep your distancing. Don't take it out on them. If you don't think you can do that, maybe you need to wait to take your trip. I just want to throw that out there.
2: No, and likewise, if you are disappointed that you're not getting the full experience, for example, the parades, the fireworks, they are still going to have characters going around. And I believe from what I've read up on it, it sounds like they're going to have them... Because they're not doing ride queues. That's very important, too. That's also going to be a reservation system. But I think they're going to have more randomized character appearance. Because you can't also create lines waiting to take a picture with the character.
0: Yeah, there'll be no meet and greet. They're just out and about like at Disneyland.
2: Right. So you'll see them. It's just not going to be the same as far as photo ops go. So if, if you're concerned about any of that, my recommendation, you know, as a Disney fan and as a travel professional... Wait until 2021. They should have most of their full experiences back, and it's also the 50th anniversary. So that's when you're really going to want to go, and you're going to want to celebrate, and you'll get more of a full experience.
0: Right. And if you're trying to get down to the parks, or if you're trying to move things around in 2021, it seems like it's the way that you want to do it. Obviously, Jackie can help get you there.
2: Yes. Um, at the time of this recording, I am able to do reservations until September 26, 2021. So if you did have a trip that was canceled this year, uh, I can certainly help you rebook. Um, if you're considering going, even if you know the ins and outs of Disney and you know how to book and, and work around the system, I would also recommend getting in touch with me because I have to through my company guarantee the lowest price. So I have to imagine that Disney is going to be fluctuating the reservations quite a bit next year, depending on supply and demand. So if you book yourself, you are locked into the price that you booked for. If you book through me, I can change that Uh, so you can get in touch with me either through any of our monoreal radio channels uh, or you can email me at J.Zolezi. That's Z-O-L-E-Z-Z-I at MagicalVacationPlanner.com. I am so excited to start booking again. I'm so excited to start living vicariously through people who are going to be able to go to Disney and experience it full out. And I'm really excited to see what the 50th anniversary brings at Magic Kingdom.
0: Yeah, me too. Thank you all so much for joining us this and every week on Monoreal Radio. Again, a special thanks to our guest, Luke Lawson, for joining us tonight on our discussion of heavyweights. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at Monoreal Radio. You can email us, monorealradio at gmail.com, and check out monorealradio.com, where every episode of the show is available. You can also... Subscribe on your podcast platform of choice. And please don't forget, if you like the show, share the show. And if you really like the show, as we hope that you do, please give us a review on iTunes. We love getting your feedback. We love interacting with you. And we've said it before. We've said it again. We've been able to get some really interesting guests. And we want to keep giving you guys excellent content. You know, we do it for you. And the iTunes reviews certainly help get us there. Thank you so much again for Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies the stuff dreams are made of